previously on Here's What I've Heard. A former Lebanon County couple and their 15-month-old daughter were killed Saturday evening in an auto accident near Lemoore, California. And it was traumatic for me at 18. At 18, you just don't expect to come up on an accident that involves, well, what it was, it involved children. Mm -hmm. And that's what bothered me. Yeah, yeah. After they left, they didn't stay long. They did just long enough to, to break the news to me. And I went to go back upstairs, and there's a curb at the top of the steps, but I walked right into the wall and almost fell backwards down the stairs. I was just in so much shock, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Even now, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard. I was at somebody's house, I can't remember who, and I kept asking my when my parents were coming to pick me up, and they got mad at me and said, stop asking about that. Maybe around the 10th grade or so. I didn't see him in the yearbook anymore after that. After he On November 19, 1965, nearly two weeks after the accident, the Hanford Sentinel ran a story under the following headline. Boy, orphaned by collision, leaves hospital. Three-year-old Paul Klein, orphaned in the Kings County traffic collision, left Valley Children's Hospital this week, accompanied by his guardians. An attendant said his four-year-old brother, Jerry, is improving steadily and should soon be ready to join him. Meanwhile, the Kings County District Attorney's Office so the complaint charging four counts of vehicular manslaughter has been issued against Thomas Kaler, 23, of Hanford, still in King's General Hospital recovering from a head injury suffered in the head-on collision on the Avenal Cutoff south of Plymouth. Assistant District Attorney Philip Marut said Kaler will be arraigned as soon as his physical condition permits. While Tommy Kaler recovered from his own injuries, the bodies of two young parents were delivered back to their mourning families in Pennsylvania. My grandfather, Gerald Klein, better known as Jerry to friends and family, was alive at the scene, but died on the way to the hospital, leaving his two sons orphaned. More than 50 years later, I sat down with the eldest son, my father, also named Jerry, and asked what he remembered about his parents. He tapped an envelope on the table as he explained that he couldn't recall much. Um, actually, I don't remember anything about that mm -hmm. um, and basically no one has really told me like how my parents were with us mm -hmm. Gerald Eugene Klein was born June 21st 1941 to Bertha and Daniel Klein in Anvil Pennsylvania a few days later the Lebanon Daily News announced the birth of the Klein's eighth child reporting 
Mr. and Mrs. Daniel Klein of Church Street announced the birth of an 11-pound son, Gerald Klein, Saturday at their home. Having had one kid myself, the thought of giving birth to an 11-pound child kind of horrifies me, especially considering that my great-grandmother had seven other children before him. But Bertha wasn't daunted, and she went on to have three more children after Jerry. In all, there were 11 Klein children. Sonny, the third, died at 12 years old in a freak accident, and Nancy, the sixth child, died unexpectedly as a young adult. Like their brother's accident years later, Sonny and Nancy's deaths were extremely tragic for the family. Jerry had just turned two when his brother Sonny died in 1943, and no one in the family could have guessed that this event would be the precursor to an even greater sadness in the years to come. After Nancy's death in 1958, there were eight Klein children left. Bob, Alice, Emma, Jeanette, Doris, Jerry, Jim, Jack, and Jill. Jeanette, who now goes by Ginny, described the family's life as being one of dissension. As soon as she was old enough, her parents pushed her to work, and she welcomed the chance to get out of the house. At the age of five, she delivered newspapers with Sonny, and after his death, she took over the route. As she got older, Ginny continued working various jobs and helped out in the garden. She repeatedly told me that the situation at home was very difficult and that the siblings tried to look out for one another. Ginny was engaged by the time she graduated from high school, but she continued to reach out to her brothers and sisters and make sure they were getting along all right. My great-grandfather died a few months before I was born, and my great-grandmother died the year after. To this day, I've never seen a photo of my great-grandfather past the age of 19, and I have no idea what either of my great-grandparents were like besides what I've learned from my dad. So I asked one of my second cousins what her perspective is to try to get a sense of why Ginny might describe the Klein home life as difficult. Renata, Bob's child, remembers her grandparents well. Well... Along with him really well. I mean, when I got married, my husband hung out with uh, Grandpa, or Pappy. Just hang out a lot with them. Well, him it was my grandfather, my dad, and my husband used to always go out. Mm -hmm. You know, down to they would take him down to the union hose, you know, the fire company, you know, the fire company, and that. It's a little hard to hear, but Renata is saying the union hose fire company. She's talking about the Union Hose Social Club in Anvil, which is affiliated with the Anvil Fire Department Station 5 and is located just a 10-minute walk from the Klein home. The vets and stuff like that, every Sunday morning, mm -hmm. they needed to go for groceries. We did that, you know, stuff. I mean, towards the end of their lives, Alice moved them up close to her so she could help take care of them mm -hmm. because of their, you know, being elderly in need. Right. Nostalgia seems to run deep among the Klein family cousins. They remember Bertha and Daniel as loving, kind grandparents. But still, in those early years, the two aging parents watched them find jobs and move out as soon as they were able. And Jerry was no exception. More on that after the break. At MAD, we believe in zero. Zero fathers who aren't there for bedtime. Zero mothers who miss the first day of school. Zero children who never come home. 
we believe in zero victims of drunk driving. With MAD, your support adds up to zero because we believe in a hug on the first day of school. We believe in another bedtime story. We believe in no more victims. We believe in zero. Ginny describes her brother Jerry as a very gentle and caring person who always looked out for his younger siblings and often had kind things to say about others. Despite being raised in what she describes as a, quote, very bad situation, she says he turned out to be a, quote, very beautiful person. Jerry's other sister, Doris, just two years his elder, was one of his closest confidants growing up. He was a handsome dude. Jeez. <laughs> uh, and his looks only improved after he uh, enlisted in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I don't remember him being all that tall, maybe 5'10". Uh, easygoing. Uh, compassionate. Um, what can I say? I don't remember him ever ever being angry. We used to uh, play wrestle. <laughs> I used to always wrestle my brothers, but that's, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Actually, a uh, hard worker, but then that's the nature of our family, uh, was to work if you want to get ahead. My dad recalls his grandmother echoing this sentiment about Jerry, stating that he was driven and wanted the best for himself and his family. All she told me about my father was that he was, he wanted to be successful. He wanted to get a college, he wanted, I don't know if he wanted to get a college degree, but he wanted to be a boss and he wanted to be like, a, you know, he, he was going to be something. That's what he always said. It seems that Jerry was also fiercely loyal to his brothers. Jim was three years younger than Jerry, and the two could often be found playing together. One day, Doris remembers, they found an old treehouse and climbed inside. And I remember him taking a heck of a beating defending his brother Jim one time, that they, they had gone uh, and they saw this treehouse, and it wasn't on any private property or anything, and they crawled up into the treehouse to play, and the town bully came along, and uh, Jerry tried to defend Jim, and Jim ran home and and got uh, our older brother, much older, 12 years older than me. But uh, by the time he got there, Jerry was pretty well beaten up by the town bully, hmm. and uh, looked pretty bad. You know, his face was all swollen and everything. But he wasn't the only one in town to ever got beaten up by this kid. And when when was this? How old was Jerry at the time? Jerry could have only been maybe 11 or 12. Okay, and Jim was younger, right? Yeah, two years younger. Okay. His loyalty extended to his sisters, too. Uh, I remember us going ice skating a lot, and Jim and Jerry and I, we're always together. Like I said, we were almost inseparable. And uh, we'd go ice skating. And I remember one time, another girl and I were both skating backwards and we collided and both went down in the ice. And instead of trying to help her up, they came to my aid and, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't do anything for her. Uh-huh. And I reprimanded them for that, you know, help her, you know, <laughs> I'm okay. Aww. 
And, like her sister Ginny, Doris doesn't remember Jerry getting into too much trouble, with one exception. I know he, he got, uh, he and his brothers, all, all three of them, Jack, Jim, and Jerry, they all got a good spanking from Dad when they were quite young. They couldn't have been more than, oh, Jerry couldn't have been more than eight, maybe nine. And the two brothers, two years apart, you know, younger. And uh, Dad was a mechanic. And he had a uh, delivery truck in for repairs. And, you know, we lost one brother from uh, being burned to death. Mm-hmm. This was Sonny, the brother we mentioned earlier who died at the age of 12 in the first of several tragic losses for the Kleins. A much older brother. And uh, when my dad came out and caught them in this truck with matches and a little can of gas and paper, he just went ballistic, and they all three got a good spanking. Hmm. One they never forgot, oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> but, uh, so I, you know, I can't remember Jerry ever getting into a whole lot of mischief. Like I said, uh, we were just, just buddies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Around town, it seems that Jerry didn't have many friends. His classmate, Ray Baumgartner, lived just down the road. Since I first found Ray via the internet, I've come to know him more personally as a really kind soul. We're Facebook friends now, and we play words with friends together. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I've never beat him, not even once. He's really, really good. He often comments on pictures of my son, and his gentle presence serves as a reminder of my grandfather, which is ironic because... According to Ray himself, the two didn't spend any time together as boys. What'd you know about him? Well, not a whole lot. He was like an enigma. He was, he was there, but he actually wasn't. I don't recall him ever really having any friends or anything like that. Courtney, he was around. He was in school with us and everything, but there was nothing that, that stood out about him. Uh, you know, they never come outside and play with the kids in the neighborhood or anything. I don't think they were allowed, maybe. Uh, you know, we go past the house and you never see any of the kids out front. They might be in the backyard, but we never see anybody out front. I remember seeing them every now and then in his dad's garage, or I believe his dad might have been a mechanic or something. And he was there occasionally doing things, but as far as going to school or anything like that, nothing ever really stood out. Over the years, the Kleins sold their property off bit by bit. But back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they had a large lot in Anvil, Pennsylvania. While the house was small, their yard was quite large. Daniel used the space to fix up cars, and Bertha had a garden that she tended to. Ray thinks that having all that space to disappear into may have accounted somewhat for why he didn't see Jerry much, but he also remembers the entire family keeping to themselves. Kind of like like a ghost. He was there, but nothing stood out. Kind of like that with the whole family. They they kind of really kept to themselves. Like I said, they were very they were very private. I don't they, I don't think they were allowed to come out and play with the other kids because they were obviously poor, and I don't, I think they were embarrassed about letting the kids come out and play with their kids. They they made them stay in, in their yard and in the house. Mm-hmm. It's it's so strange. It's, it's 
you know, you never come out to help play baseball or, you know, ride bikes or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, you just didn't do it. I guess they weren't allowed. Another classmate, Betty Forney, told me in an email that she had the same ghost-like memory of Jerry, saying, quote, can still see his house, a small one, sitting atop a small bank. But she lived on the other side of town, and she and Jerry didn't walk to school together. Later, they were in different classes. But even when the neighborhood kids gathered after school, Jerry didn't join them. Russell Brandt's parents owned an appliance store, and they had the first TVs around because they sold them. And all us kids were used to go down there to their appliance store like at 4.30 in the afternoon after school and watch a show called Hottie Duty. Okay. It was puppets. And uh, all the neighborhood kids would gather there and go there. And, of course, he was never at that. I'm mm-hmm. sure he would have been allowed to be there, but he never, he never did. Mm-hmm. Like some of his older siblings, Jerry dropped out of school after the 10th grade. He went to work at the H.O. Tour Shoe Factory. I only know this because a few years back, I helped my dad file a request for Jerry's military records. On his enlistment papers, his main civilian occupation is listed as pooler over machine. At the time of his enlistment, he'd been working there for 13 months and was making $65 a week. Under duties, the form states that Jerry, quote, worked as a pooler over machine operator in a large shoe factory, set shoes in jig, press lever to rotate mechanism that press sides of shoes together, centered upper of shoe, and depressed lever that tacks sole to shoe. Riveting stuff. But even so, Jerry and his brother-in-law Don, Doris's husband, who also worked at the shoe factory, managed to find time to play a few practical jokes. And I don't know whether it was my husband or whether it was Jerry that asked, um, a person to go get uh, some toenails for making, you know, working on the shoes. Oh. I sent him to go get a bucket of toenails. And the, the kid turned around and, and was asking everybody, where does he get the toenails? <laughs> and it was just <laughs> in jest. Oh, so, But it was one of the classic jokes, you know, that they pull on new employees. Mm-hmm. It was while Jerry was at the shoe factory that he met Linda. Before I started working on this podcast, I gathered all of my findings into a blog for my family and friends to read. At first, I updated it pretty frequently, but eventually life got in the way of my research. It had been years since my last post when an email showed up in my inbox with a mysterious subject line. My sister. It was from Lloyd Seibert, my great uncle. I'd never met Lloyd, but I knew his name from family records that I'd found on genealogy websites. He'd Googled his sister's name and landed on my blog. His email went on to say, My name is Lloyd Seibert. Linda is my sister. Please call me. You have answers for me, and I have details for you. Until Jerry came into my sister's life, we were very close. Please call. Of course, I jumped on the phone as soon as I could. 
A few weeks later, my entire family drove out to visit Uncle Lloyd at his home, where he pulled out albums full of family photos, including pictures of my grandparents' wedding day. Up until that point, my dad had only two or three photos of his parents. We didn't even know that photos like these existed. With that visit came new stories and fresh knowledge, including the answer to a question I'd had for a long, long time. How did Jerry and Linda meet? Jerry actually was dating Linda's best friend. And I remember, remember your grandfather, Jerry, was telling us a story one day. He said, they went out on a date, a double date. And he looked at his girlfriend, which her name was Joyce. And he looked at my sister and he looked at Joyce. And he looked at my sister and he said, why am I dating her when I can be with her? <laughs> and that's how they met. You know, and then they, they went out together and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. You know? I wanted to learn more about the early days of their relationship, especially since it was so short. On another more recent trip to visit Lloyd, he told my dad, uncle, and I about how he knew right away that Jerry was different than the other guys Linda had dated. He was different because on the first dates that my sister went on, she used to take me along just in case it didn't work out. Like she had to be, had to babysit, you know, but with Jerry, I, I, wasn't invited to go along and I remember I probably told you the story I remember sitting on the porch and Jerry pulled up in his car I forget what kind of car he had but he had an old car well probably not that old at the time but uh and I was getting ready to go and my sister looked at me and said you can't go along I started crying you know like what are you talking about you know that kind of stuff you know I I don't remember exactly but I remember crying and I remember it bought Jerry was out a week later that weekend, the following weekend, they took us to a park and he took me along. To make and it up. What, yeah. To make, to make it, it up, up to you. <laughs> but I knew that was different. I knew it was, I knew then that there was something different about this guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him at the time. <laughs> you didn't like him at the time? No, not at that time. I, I, I he didn't take you Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like him. <laughs> but Uncle Lloyd eventually softened up. Just outgoing, friendly, uh, considerate. He was... Kind of like, with my brothers, I fought with them all the time because we were brothers, but he was like an, uh, like an older brother to me. By all accounts, Jerry and Linda were very much in love. And Jerry knew right away what he wanted to do when the couple found out that Linda was pregnant. He left the shoe factory and joined the Navy in July of 1960. In October of that same year, they married. That's right, my dad, little Jerry, tucked safely away in his mother's womb, is in those wedding photos too. While it all sounds very romantic, and I would argue is romantic, Doris looks at it more practically. I know that we were all brought up, you make your bed, you lie in it, you know? And you don't, you know, if if she's good enough to, to sleep with before, then she's good enough to sleep with after as well, you know? You know what I mean? It was a responsibility that we were taught, you know? You don't leave the girl sit. Mm-hmm. They they all knew that. I think she stayed with her parents while he was in the Navy. In the Navy, Jerry finished his high school diploma and learned to become a jet aircraft servicer. Ginny recalls that he was glad to have the chance to travel to California and get away from the familiar. He relished the opportunity to experience a totally different environment from the one he grew up in. In March of 1961, my father was born. Jerry took 12 days of leave to meet his new son, and then it was back to work. 
According to his military records and historical information about his unit, Jerry was one of 17 enlisted men from VF-126 who, along with one commissioned officer, started the Jet Instrument Training Unit at the newly commissioned Lemoore Naval Air Station. Servicing and flying the Cougar jet fighters, these men were the first to conduct scheduled flights from the station and were eventually recommissioned as VA-127. Linda and Little Jerry joined their sailor in Lemoore around the start of 1962, and soon Linda was pregnant again, this time with my Uncle Paul, the couple's second son. By the time Jerry left the Navy to join Standard Oil's fire prevention team, she was preparing for the birth of their third child, Teresa Robin. After Robin was born, the family of five took a trip home to Pennsylvania. My second cousin Kathleen, whose mother was Jerry's sister Emma, says that Jerry wanted everyone to come together without fighting. The tense dynamic across the large family hadn't changed from what he understood, and he wanted everyone to put aside their differences. Both sides of the family still remember this visit quite well, including Doris. And so, can you tell me a little bit about the last time you saw him? I know he came to visit right before the accident. came to visit, and because I never got a chance to uh, buy anything for the kids, I went out and did some shopping and bought some things. <laughs> and it's hard. The, the dress I bought for Robin was the one she was buried in. Teresa Robin, mm-hmm. and they called her Robin, not Teresa. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, what can I say? It just—it was heartbreaking. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I can't. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. No, I understand. It's not an easy thing to talk about. <laughs> no, it isn't. And, uh, yeah, they came in about six weeks before the accident. And we saw each other. And uh, Jerry was telling my husband we should come out to California and be closer to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that time, we hadn't had made no, you know, no plans for anything. It wasn't long that we had bought our house, so... Kathleen says that as this visit drew to an end and the family bid each other farewell, there were tears from many of the Kleins. They had no idea when they would see Jerry, Linda, and the children again. And they had no idea that this would be the last time any of them would ever see the young couple and their baby girl alive. During that first visit to my great-uncle Lloyd's house, he gave us several pictures from Jerry and Linda's last visit to Pennsylvania. In one, baby Robin lies sleeping on a makeshift bed on the floor. In another, she's toddling down the sidewalk, clad only in a diaper. There's a photo of her with Linda's mother, Fern, and another of her crawling. Unlike her tow-headed brothers, Robin had thick brown hair that laid straight and choppy bangs that topped her round little face. None of the photos show her crying. Although not many people back then took photos of children as they cried, I would imagine. This was, after all, a time before unlimited cloud space. And so that is how little Teresa Robin is remembered. She will forever be the baby in the brand new dress from Aunt Doris, 
the baby who laughed on the swings with cousin Kathleen, the baby who was, allegedly, her father's favorite child. In the rest of the photos, Linda's family makes scattered appearances. In one, Fern leans down next to her seated son-in-law and flashes a sly smile toward the camera. Another shows a young Uncle Lloyd lying on a blanket while his nephews play nearby. Just like the extended Klein family, this would be the last time the Seibert saw Jerry, Linda, and Robin. But unlike Daniel and Bertha Klein, Fern and Franklin Seibert wouldn't get to see their grandsons very often after this point. For the Seiberts, it was almost easier to pack away those memories and move on. Linda was their shining star, a caring, beautiful girl surrounded by troublemaking brothers who were in and out of jail from a young age. Like her daughter, she was her father's favorite child, a kid who could do no wrong, no matter the mischief. But now, she was gone. And for the Seiberts, that was all there was to be said about that. Nobody talks about Linda. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody talks about Linda. Next time on Here's What I've Heard. Here's What I've Heard is produced by Courtney Abood and Craig Brown. Musical direction was provided by Julia Cannon, featuring Bobby Steinfeld on piano. Special thanks to two of our newest patrons, Jen West and Tom James. To be a patron and gain access to exclusive content, including the full story of what happened to Sonny and Nancy, visit patreon.com slash here's what I've heard. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash here's what I've heard. Have comments or questions about here's what I've heard? Know someone related to this story? Contact us by emailing the team at here's what I've heard dot com.